Heavenly Father, may these truths be evident in our lives. May you write them upon our hearts, knowing that as we struggle through this sojourn on earth, that we have a defender, that we have a Savior, our guide, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. May that not be lost on us in the moment's struggles. In the valley, turn our eyes to Jesus. And on the mountaintop, let us lay everything at his feet. I pray that day in and day out, Lord, you remind us that you have done the work. That you have brought us to this place. That you have won salvation for us by the blood of Christ. The imputation of your righteousness, Lord. Let this be a daily, the gift that brings us to worship you. For you are worthy of all praise. You told us, Lord, that there would be troubles. We know this. We feel these things. But you have overcome the world. Lord, we thank you that you are that glorious defender, that mighty refuge upon which we can hide. Father, let us love your word. Let it dwell in us, for it is the word of life. As David comes forward and shares with us what you have for us this morning, I pray that you would give him boldness and clarity. For he speaks not for the approval of man, but for the approval of you. Let us be faithful in hearing. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truths that you have for us. Where there is pride, let it be torn down. Let us come to you in humility and expectation. Lord, we know you're powerful. Not just against the foes we face, but against the sin in our own lives. In this time, Lord, through your holy word, make us to be more like Christ. Let us not leave this place without being moved in some great way by your Spirit. Father, I pray that in this time we would truly be a people who are hungry and thirsty for your word. By your Spirit, let us worship you through the study of that word as you write it upon our hearts. Father, we love you. We bless you. We dedicate all of these things to your service and to your glory. Amen. Maybe seated. This morning we're continuing our series in Take Your Stand, looking at the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. We started two weeks ago. We came off of a series on koinonia, on rethinking church fellowship, what that looks like, what it means for us to be the church, what it means for us to live in that 
that intimate kind of koinonia fellowship where we we live life, we do life together in uh, many ways that God leads us. I can't wait to hear how the Bible study this morning went, as I know there was discussion on koinonia and how we actually practically live together that way. But, but we jumped off of that into the armor of God because of the fact that when when you get serious about walking in your faith, when you get serious about being the church, when you get serious about living uh, as the church, as the outpost of heaven uh, on the earth, as the church, to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, to be the mouth of Jesus proclaiming the gospel, then there are going to be attacks. There are going to be things that come your way that are challenging, are difficult, that will make you want to stop. And so we need to make sure that we're taking our stand in the right way according to the weaponry that the Spirit gives us and not on our own terms, because as we do that, we will fall. We started off two weeks ago kind of looking at that overview on, um, on, what, it, on what we're called to do, and last week Jacob uh, started off with the belt of truth, which is foundational. We can't really talk about the, the breastplate of righteousness unless we understand that we are girded first and foremost by the word of truth. That it is the truth that holds us together. When Paul put together this analogy, it's it's brilliant because all around them were Roman soldiers. And so there was this great visual. I'm going to look over here 10 or 12 times because you know that's my usual default. So when I do this and go there, I'm just struggling. So you see, though, that, that there is this armor. And so as he looks at that and he can say, look, it's like this. The whole idea of the belt, once that armor is in place, it holds things together. It's a place where he holds his sword. That that breastplate, it's form-fitting, but if it's not attached, if it's not snugged up with that belt, it's going to flop around. And so he starts off talking about the belt of truth, that you have to stand on the truth. And if you didn't get an opportunity to be here last week, go back and watch the the sermon that Jacob preached last week, um, which is, again, foundational. But this week we are told to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. So the breastplate is the part of the armor that protects the vital organs. It protects the heart. And so he's saying that you need this covering. You need a protection for your heart because your heart can lead you astray. Right? It can can lead you in all sorts of different directions. The fallen heart is wicked. And if you think that you're basically good, then... We're out of step with the Word of God because the Word of God tells us that we are born in iniquity, that we are born fallen. And so the heart wants to do its own thing and wants to go its own, its own way. But it's also vulnerable to all the attacks of the enemy. And if it can get your heart, which is the, that, that seat of your being, then a victory has been won for the enemy. And so Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. But the question we have to ask, first of all, is what, is what is righteousness? What are we talking about when he says put on the breastplate of righteousness? Is it, is it my righteousness? Is it me doing good? Is it being a good person? Uh, is it something else? How do we know when he says put on the breastplate of righteousness? What that means? Because you, do you know? You know? Think about this. Yourself. Do you know when he says put on the breastplate of righteousness? What do you do? What, what does it look like in your life? How do you interpret that? Because that's, that's a, a big key. Again, it can be something outside of you. It can be something inside of you. And so I started just by, I wanted to see what definitions were there for, for righteousness. So the one I happened to go to was Britannica, 
which I believe is technically an encyclopedia, but it still had a, a definition of righteousness. And it said this, it's the quality of being righteous, makes sense, or in the right. And it means the same as justice, justness, and uh, just, justness, and justice. And it said in biblical usage, in relation to human subjects, righteousness primarily denotes a legal and social status or a moral state. So righteousness is not so much just what you do. It's a state of being. Righteousness relates to, to legal standing. You're either righteous or you're unrighteous. It's not like on any given day you do something that is righteous, but on the other days you do unrighteous things. It's like somebody in prison who's been convicted of a sin or convicted of a crime, which probably is a sin too, but they're convicted They can do something right in jail. They can be a criminal and still do right things, but they're still a criminal and they're still in jail. It's more than that. So let's say we have somebody, we have a guy who who really focuses on, like, not breaking the law. I mean, does not want to break the law. Does everything that he can to make sure that he knows the laws of the land and he tries to stay away from them. And yet he tends to understand that the rule of the road is you've got a free 10 miles per hour. Yeah, you bunch of lawbreakers. I see it. You're smirking at me. Right. Yeah. So, so he goes, that's no big deal. But what's happened? As soon as he went one mile over the posted speed limit, he became a lawbreaker. So you're all a bunch of criminals, right? So, so it didn't take much. Now we would go, well, that's not a big deal. But when we're talking about what is righteous and what is not righteous, there's no real gray area there. You're either a full law keeper or if you break something, you're a lawbreaker, right? So repentance can happen anytime and I'm I'm in there with you. I understand that. But we have to understand righteousness if we're going to get it right. We have to understand the scope of that and how far this goes. This is not a balance of the scales, This is not trying to be better than I am bad. It is a state of being. You are either guilty or you're not guilty. And so an important question we need to ask is, can I be righteous on my own? Can I do that? Based on my own definition, can I be righteous on my own? And the answer to that is pretty simple. If you can be innocent on your own, then you can be righteous on your own. But in the same sense, we're talking from a scriptural standpoint, in the same sense that if you, if you don't keep the full law of God perfectly, then you're a lawbreaker. Not my opinion. In James chapter 2, he said, indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in scripture, love your neighbors yourself. We know love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbors yourself. These are the two greatest commandments. So he says, if you keep the royal law, you fulfill the royal law prescribed in Scripture, love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. Good job. Verse 9. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin, and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. Is Kevin in the house? See, you have to step out? Okay. This, it's a, I don't know if it's getting you all, but there's a um up here. Uh, so verse 10. For whoever keeps... The entire law, and yet stumbles where? At one point. He's guilty of breaking it all. 
I mean, that, the, so the bar went from, eh, it's just 10 miles per hour, to, good gracious, I, can be convi- I should be convicted of everything because I've broken the whole law. It's pretty, it's pretty intense. It's pretty heavy. Why? Because he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you're a lawbreaker. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So if you are determined you're going to keep the law of God, by that be considered righteous, you're under a curse. Because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. So Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, said something very similar. He said, now it's clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith, right? So everyone who does not, oops, sorry, I skipped it. That's the one I want. I just gave away the punchline. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law, there we go, are under a curse because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the law of the book of the law is cursed. So Paul keeps it really simple. He said, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Every single person is a sinner. There is none righteous. There is not a single person who is justified by his own actions. Therefore, we cannot justify ourselves. Then we jump over to verse 11 and he says, for it is clear that no one is justified by the, uh, before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. Well, James finished his statement in verse, 11, uh, verse 12 of chapter 2 and he said, speak and act as those who are to be judged according to the law of freedom. Now, I don't want to assume that everybody in here knows what the law of freedom is that he's talking about. And really, I can't even assume that if you know what the law of freedom is, that you're necessarily living by it. I mean, we're talking about Paul and James who were writing to the Christian church. So he's writing to Christians, talking about these things, and he's making sure that they get this right. And so as we look at this, as we talk about the law of freedom, we need to turn over to Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, verse 3, we're going to be looking a lot in Romans, big chunk of Romans, and we're going to look at another chunk of another passage a little later. So, so definitely hang on to Romans chapter 4 here. He started off by saying, what does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him. For what? It was credited to him. for It was that he believed. He believed God. It was credited to to him for righteousness. Verse 4, now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. That's logical, right? You're not going to work something and get a gift. It's a gift because you did not work. So the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited for righteousness. Likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those, he said, whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. This is a huge statement. It is a huge part of the gospel because verse 8 says, blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Blessed is the person who will never be charged with sin. That's great news. We're talking about the gospel here. Are we off again? Okay, we're back. Good. And we're back. Verse 13, he said, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, 
but through the righteousness that comes by faith. I want you to notice this word right here, that comes. It's something that comes from the outside to us. He doesn't even say it's derived inside of us. It's something that you do. He's making very, very clear. This is not something that you have, that you are, but it comes by faith. Right? So you're getting the picture here that this is something that has to be derived from without, not from within. Verse 14, if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made empty and the promise is nullified because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith so that it may be according to grace. To guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to the one who is of the law, but also to the one who is of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. So the recipients we're talking about are in verse 23, and it was credited to him, was not written to Abraham alone, but also for us. That's in, this is including us. Paul is writing to the church, present and future. And he's saying, this is also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus the Lord from the dead. That's the faith that we're talking about. That is the recipient of the grace. And the result of grace is in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For just as through one man's disobedience, we're talking about Adam, right? Through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So also the one man's obedience, we're talking about Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, uh, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign, here it is, through righteousness. And here's the result, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Because of what Jesus has done, there is righteousness that comes to us. This means our legal standing changes. In Christ, we go from being lawbreakers to righteous, from guilty to not guilty, not because of something that is within me, but because of something that comes to me as an alien righteousness. Which means it's not from the inside, it's from the outside. And so because of Christ's justifying work, he cleanses us from unrighteousness and he leaves, uh, leaves us declared righteous. In the same way that Abraham, before he had done anything that was, he didn't have the law. At that moment when he was told that through you all the nations will be blessed, he believed. And it was the forerunner, it was the shadow to the coming of Jesus through Abraham he believed, and those who believe in the same vein receive the good news that Christ has declared us righteousness. That is the law of freedom. That's the law of freedom. But here's the bad news. The bad news is that Satan still uses the law against us. Let's go back to verse 20. Let me find 20. Right here. So verse 20 says, the law came along to multiply the trespass. So essentially what it's saying is that the law came so that the trespass against God would be demonstrated and proven to me. 
so that I would know that I'm a transgressor, so that I would know that I can't keep the law. I can't do that because I am born fallen. I don't have the capacity within me to keep the law to be righteous before God. But God says, hey, here's the law. If you keep it, you're righteous. If you keep it, then you're good. Jesus even said something similar to the rich man, the rich young ruler, right? But he found that one part where he was off. He was like, I've kept it all since I was young. And he's like, yeah, but what about this one? And he walks away sad because he knew he he was not measuring up. So the law is there to show me I need something outside of myself to save me. That I need something outside of me to be righteousness for me. Because it's up to, if it's up to me, I'll just go the one mile over the speed limit. And I know that's not true. I will do a whole lot more. And I look back on my life and I can see all the times, all the times, that I have fallen short of the glory of God. And if that's where I land, if that's where I stay, I'm without hope. But if I understand that the righteousness of Christ, what he did on the cross, what he did by being raised from the dead, it is taking my place, taking my unrighteousness and making his righteousness applied to me through belief, through faith. Now I can stand before God holy and complete, fully righteous in my standing. Not because of myself, but because of Jesus from start to finish. But here's the thing. Here's what, here's what Satan wants to do. Let's just take that out. And so we're left with the law came along to multiply the trespass. You see, what Satan wants to do is keep the trespass in front of my face. What he wants to do is he wants to come at me and say, you know what, you're not really worthy. You know that, right? Do you remember what you said yesterday, Price? Do you remember that? Do you remember what your attitude was yesterday? You think that God loves you? You think that somehow you're righteous to So the law came to multiply the trespass. And when I compare myself against the perfect law of God, I'm done. I'm toast. When I step into that place where the temptation comes and I want to say, I did that. I was a pretty good guy. Look at what I did. Then all of a sudden, it all just comes flooding back. And I realize I'm undone. I can even believe objectively all of the things that I said and yet subjectively not live according to it. Do you get that? And the enemy wants you to believe that it's okay to objectively acknowledge that. If he can get you to objectively believe that yes, even this part, let's just take that off. Yes, sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Can I get an amen? And the house goes, amen! but you don't live it, but you don't walk in that every day, then you're getting the attack of the enemy in a way that takes you down. And we have to understand how intense the the attacks are, how powerful those can be if we give in to them. That's where the battle lies. We're talking about righteousness and the magnitude of righteousness and the magnitude of my sin, the magnitude of what Christ did 
and the magnitude of what that means for me. The battle lines are drawn and the battle starts there where the enemy comes up and he does not want you to realize and remember and to live according to grace is multiplied. So I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes I go, did I just get to the end of God's grace? Did I get to the end of God's grace? Is it, have you never been there? Have you ever been to that place where you're just kind of like, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I had that attitude. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I fall, I fell again. You ever been there? You ever done that? And you just kind of go, surely he's done with me. But the word says, no, 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 no. Grace multiplied even more. It doesn't mean that we're going to take grace for granted. It doesn't mean we're going to abuse it. We can. We certainly can, and that's a part of the battle. If, if Satan can just get you to fall over and over and over, simply because you can come back and say, well, there's grace, grace, grace. Then we got a problem in our heart because now we're, we're relying on cheap grace. Now we're talking about the grace of God that convicts us of our sins and we rely on him and we turn in repentance when we know we have fallen. But the battle is going to be right there. It is attacks against our faith. It is attacks against the extent of our belief in the gospel. Catch what I'm saying. I'm kind of restating what I already have. But it's that place where it's like I believe it to the point that I know it is applied to me. Right? So that I may be able, and this is, this is my temptation sometimes. Sometimes you can come to me and, you're, and you've got, man, you've just got this really heavy thing that you've done. Or you've just fallen in this deep sin. Or you're, you're, in, this, you're in this path of sin. And we can sit down together and I can say, there's grace for that. You're, you're beating yourself up. It is good to acknowledge that you have sinned. Yes, acknowledgement is the first step. Repentance is the second step. So when you repent, there's grace for that. There's grace for you to do that. And you walk out having heard about the grace of God, having repented and knowing that you're clean. And I myself can step back in here and go, but oh my gosh, that thing I said. There's the attack. Ask me how I know. It's that place where I don't apply the gospel to myself. Even if I express it to you, what do I need? I need a breastplate of righteousness. I need the righteousness of Christ. I need his righteousness on me. I need my heart protected. I need my mind protected. Right? I need to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ applies to me too. It applies to you too. And so no matter what the enemy brings at you, no matter how many times he attacks you where you, and it's just crazy how he knows, isn't it? It's crazy he knows where to hit me. It's crazy how he knows how to hit you. He doesn't know everything like God knows, but boy, he's really in tune. It's in tune. So we have to know that and we have to rely on the righteousness of Christ. Now we can know that, but we can still be successfully attacked. I hope I'm getting that through. Why? Probably a lot of reasons, but the one that I believe is probably the most is because the, God, the, the breastplate of righteous, the armor of God, doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. You can't utilize the, the, the armor of God 
because it doesn't fit you. It's like you try and it just doesn't work. It's not, it's not staying on. <clears throat> you know, the thing about it is, if you saw the picture earlier, you saw how form-fitting that breastplate was, that, that armor, all the armor was very form-fitting, right? It wouldn't do if he had a helmet that was, you know, wiggling around like this, or if like, it would be David. Remember the story, King David going up, it wasn't king at the time, shepherd boy David who was going up against Goliath, and he put on Saul's armor, and it was just like, I can't do this, you know, this is just not working. And so he takes it off and he goes in, right? That's, that's what we're talking about. It has to be form-fitting. The problem is, if I try to put a form-fitting armor over another set of form-fitted armor, what happens? It's not going to fit. Like, why won't this thing go on? And I'm trying to slide this breastplate over another breastplate, and I'm trying to make it fit, and it doesn't fit. So then I wonder, why in the world can I do this? And the problem and the reason is because I'm still wearing armor. It's just not God's armor. It's my armor. It's the armor of the flesh. It's me wanting to do things my way. It's me wanting to handle things on my own. And again, don't disclude yourself here because it can be that you understand it, admit, and you, you're all about the armor of God. But you've never actually realized the fact that you're still wearing armor and it will not fit over. So it's not going to happen. As long as I am dealing with the armor of my own design, I'm going to fail. I'm going to fall. It means we have to take off any of the weaponry of the flesh before we can put on the armor of God. Turn with me, if you will, to Colossians chapter 3. Paul writes, so if you have been raised, this is lengthy. I'm going to read all the way through 17. We're going to cover this and we'll be wrapping it up. But I want you to, I want you to get this. If you have been raised with Christ... Okay, so again, he's talking to people who are believers. Then seek the things above where Christ is. So that's where it starts. Put your mind on things where Christ is, not on things of the earth, right? Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So my mindset has to be right first. So the first step in me putting on the right armor and getting the wrong armor off is to make sure that my mindset is right. Make sure my focus is right, which is on things above, not on things of the earth. Why? Because when I focus on the things, of, uh, things that are above, then it puts all the things down below in perspective. Then I can see it rightly. Then I can know what I'm doing, what I'm not doing, what is at my disposal through the Holy Spirit, what I can do about that. So set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Why? Because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You don't fight in that realm anymore. You've been delivered from that. It doesn't mean you can't fight that way. And that's part of the problem. But it means you have died to yourself and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, now there's, there's really three categories here. There's a put to death, a put off, and a put on. Okay, so he starts off with this, this statement. Put to death. You don't, this absolutely should never be a part of your life. This we're saying. Put to death. Why? Because these things will put you to death. These are the things that will kill you spiritually. Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, 
evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. These things will take over your life and destroy you. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. Right? Those, God's wrath is over those who replace the glory and honor with Christ with the, the brokenness of the flesh. Right? You can't have two masters. It kind of boils it down to that. You once walked in this. This is what I love about this. This is what is so great is because he's talking to believers. He said, you once did, you did this. He ain't beating them up. He's not beating them up. He said, you once did this, but no more because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You once walked in these things when you were living in it, but now put away, put off, take off the following anger, Wrath, malice, slander, filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old self with its practices. Now, what happens if somebody comes at me? What happens if somebody, if somebody attacks me verbally or, or whatever? What, what am I prone to do? I'm prone to get angry, to get just hacked off and maybe talk about them behind their back, cuss them out. And then lie. Lie about it all. That's, that's, that's my fleshly armor. And sometimes that's the, that's the first thing we go to. It's like, coming at me, bro? Right? It's like, and we, we, we go back. But he says, don't do this since you have put off the old self with its practices. You've put off. That's not you anymore. Take that armor off. You don't need it. That is not the way this works. But instead, put on the new self. You're being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. In Christ, there's not Greek or Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, Barbian, Scythian, slave, and free. But Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, He tells you who you are. He reminds you who you are. Because of that, put on. Take off the other stuff, but put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another, if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. What just happened? What just happened was... When I put those things off, I have now taken off the armor of the flesh. And now I have put on the armor of God and the spirit of God, the righteousness of Christ is coming out. And you know what the, what the enemy can do about that? Nothing. He can't do anything. He can, kill, he can still try. But when we put on this armor and we're living in this way, We're bearing with one another. We're being kind and compassionate. It disarms the enemy. The one thing he wants us to do is to... But if I'm living according to the Spirit of God living in me, then it comes out. Right? So it's not not about me being these things. Just going, you know what? You drive me insane. I don't like you but I'm going to make myself be kind to you. 
I'm going to make myself be nice. All right, and because you know what? Because I know that that's what God wants. I know that makes him happy and it makes him pleased with me. So I'm going to grip my teeth and I'm going to smile at you. That's not the way that works. If that's you, you're still under the control of the enemy. You're still, you're still being fooled by the enemy. This is not being good to become righteous. It is an overflow of righteousness in your life so that you begin to be these things. Do you, do you understand the difference? It's so imperative that we understand this. Because we're going to live in fellowship with one another and we're going to be a testimony and a light to the world outside. It cannot be on our own righteousness. It does not exist, by the way. It, your righteousness is like filthy rags. So that's pretty nasty. That's, that's you. And the enemy wants you to stay that to be, keep that you. But you have died with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. So then Jesus begins to live his life in you and you begin to, to take notice, put your mind on things above. And all of a sudden, you're, you're armoring up with the righteousness of Christ. The, Satan comes at you and says, yeah, but you're unworthy. And you go, I know, isn't it awesome? You're, you're, God couldn't love you. And you go, I know that's what I said. And yet he does. You're worthy of hell. And it's like, that's what I said. I agree with you 100%, but by God's grace, I am what I am. By God's grace, I have been redeemed. I am a child of the king and the enemy, like he did with Jesus in the wilderness. When Jesus rebuked him with the word, he had to leave. And you put on the right armor, the right way, and the enemy will have to leave. He won't stay gone long. He still keeps coming back. He still wants you to fall. He still wants to, he wants to neutralize the church. He does. But this is the way that works. One final passage. It's Romans chapter 2. It's related to what I just told you about. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law commands... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They're not Jews. They're not living according to that. They're not following the law of the law of God as revealed to the Jews. But they are still living out. They're doing the love your neighbor as yourself. They're doing love the Lord your God with all your heart. They're, they're doing this already. He says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. And that's exactly what God said he would do. Go back in Jeremiah 31, and, it, and God is talking about the, the, the new covenant. What does he say? He says, you're not going to have to teach each other. I will write it on their hearts. And, and Paul is saying, when you see that happening, guess what? God has done what he said he was going to do. And they're a law unto themselves. It is written on their hearts. Their conscience confirmed this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. When, when we get this right and we submit to God fully, it begins to overflow in our lives. And sometimes you will be surprised that your attitudes will start to change, that your attitude towards certain people will begin to change. Your thoughts towards the person you do not know but who just cut you off on the freeway, you will find, huh, I would have shot a fleshly dart at them. 
whew, not literally, just in my mind. She's like, you blankety-blankety-blank, right? I don't, I'm not doing that anymore. There's something changing in me. That's the Spirit of God working in us as we begin to put on the Spirit, uh, put on the armor of God. Are you armored up? Are you prepared to take your stand? Are you taking your stand? If not, you will be attacked and you will be wounded. You might be neutralized, but that is not what has to happen. Jesus loves you. He gave himself for you and he has given you everything you need for godliness and holiness in life. Let's pray. Lord God, what an amazing uh, reality that you are so good and you love us so well and that you have saved us apart from our works, apart from our effort. I thank you that the effort that you call us to, Father, is is to walk, just to follow you. That's what you told your disciples. Just follow me. And that that's what putting our mind on things above is. It is following you. It is submitting to you. It is acknowledging that if I am left to my own devices, my own thoughts, I'm going to start putting that armor back on. I'm going to start putting that armor back on my, my flesh, my fleshly armor, Lord. God, I pray you'll protect us from that. Protect us in our minds, which is where it all starts. And may we be glorifying to you, Lord, because of the work that you are doing in our lives and our ability to submit because of the indwelling spirit of God within us. We give you praise, honor, and glory. Amen. I ask you to stand with us as the worship team comes back up. So while they're coming, if, if you're kind of thinking through this, Paul said at the end of that, that our conscience would convict us or even excuse us or let us off. There is something about a redeemed conscience that, that, I, that I can live in such a way that I know that I'm walking in obedience. I'm not walking perfectly, but I know I'm walking in obedience. And, and I do have that conviction when I step out. But if that's not present in your life, if you're still really just the evidence of your life is that you're walking according to the flesh, all the things that, that, I'm, that I wanna, really want to encourage you, that there's more. That there's more. And in Christ, if you... If you repent of your sins, acknowledge you are a sinner, repent of your sins and follow him, believing in who he is and what he has done and receiving him as Lord, that can be yours. All that we talked about today is yours in Christ. If, on the other hand, you have followed him, but you are not walking in obedience, I want to encourage you to do business with God while we sing. Get honest with God. He already knows. And all you're doing is hurting yourself. So get real with God today. And let him heal your soul so that you can walk in in the glory of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's sing.